Uh, Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless, and no one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of vipers is under their lips, and their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace you have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Teddy. Well, today it is my prayer that you will leave more thankful than you have ever been in your life that you will have a greater understanding of and appreciation for the mercy and the grace and the love and the righteousness of God that is given to you through Jesus Christ. To get there, we have to start with some very bad news. We have to listen to what God says to us through his word here in Romans chapter 3. You have to see the depth of your need and feel the weight of your guilt this morning. We're so thankful to have families worship together with us, to have their children come and join us. And we often say the sounds they make are the sounds of children learning to worship our great and holy God together. So I'm so thankful for the children here this morning. And children this morning, I want you also to see how much you need Jesus, and I want you to know how much Jesus loves you so that you also will love him and trust him and thank him. Adults, I do want the same for you, but I also want to wring you dry of every last drop of self-righteousness that is in your body. And every last thought of my life is my own. And every last thought of I am to be praised for my salvation. And also, if you are in Christ, bring you dry of every last drop of self-condemnation that you may have. So today you will only see the mercy and the grace and the love and the glory of God in the face of your wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ. We've been studying the book of Romans, and I've been sharing with you a very broad general outline, three big sections that starts with about the first three chapters are on guilt. And that's not a very pleasant topic for us to think about, but we've been thinking about it for several weeks, guilt. Then we go into an long extended section on grace and finish with gratitude. So today, hallelujah, we finish this section on guilt. We have seen in chapter 1 the unrighteousness, the guilt of the Gentiles, those who we might say grew up outside of the church, those who live immoral lives. In chapters 2 into chapter 3, we saw the unrighteousness of the Jews, 
those who we might say grew up in the church. These were the religious people. They were living moral lives. And now we come to Paul's closing argument, his conclusion. He's summing it all up and he is showing us the unrighteousness, the guilt of all people, of everyone. A few weeks ago, I said that we want this gathering to be more like the waiting room for an ER than the waiting room for a job interview. You might remember, if we think about the waiting room for a job interview, you're trying to look as competent as you can, as impressive as you can. And so weaknesses and failures are buried, they're hidden, you're seeking to impress, you want to look your best, you want to even outdo others. And that waiting room and those conversations are not always based on what is actually true. That's not what we want here as we gather. Instead, we want to recognize we are more like the waiting room for the ER. Everyone is hurting. And everyone is desperate for help. And the truth about your condition and healing is essential. And you are ready and eager to hear it. So today, I am going to tell you the truth about your condition before Almighty God. Now you might respond, oh, wait a minute, who are you? You know me. What gives you the right to say that? I'm just a messenger today. I am just a herald. I want to tell you what God, your maker, says is true about every single person from their first day of life. And what remains true of you unless you receive God's gift of salvation through his son, Jesus. Three truths. First, you are born under sin. You are accountable to God and you cannot save yourself. You are born under sin. You're accountable to God. You cannot save yourself. All people, this is true of all people. All people, everyone you know is born under sin. All people, everyone you know is guilty before God and there is no one who can do anything to appease God so that he will change his mind about his judgment of you. That he will say you are not guilty instead of guilty and declare you righteous. This is really bad news for us. But there's good news coming. But this is really bad news for us. And we first need to understand Paul's closing argument before we get to that good news. So first, all are under sin. This is Paul's thesis statement. Verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. So friends, this is what we have in common with every single person. This is our shared humanity. We are all under sin. We are all sinners in need of salvation. You know, when you pick up the Bible, the Bible is not simply a collection of stories with moral lessons. The Bible is God's revelation to us. It is the story of God and his son Jesus and his plan to save the world. It tells us how God created the world and what went wrong with the world and how Jesus was sent to save us, to make things right. And it shows us how the world ends. So what went wrong with the world? God's word for ultimately what, what, what went wrong with the world is that short word, sin. Children, I've shared this definition with you before. It's kind of the, the vacation Bible school definition of sin. Sin is anything that we think or say or do that does not please God 
And it all starts right here in our hearts. So sin does indeed include things that we do. It includes our actions, but it goes deeper than that. It's a condition of our heart, of our nature. And Paul says, this is true of everyone. He asks this question, are we Jews any better off? And when Paul wrote this, the Jews were God's chosen people. But Paul is saying they have no inherent advantage when it comes to guilt before God. They don't have a head start. God's not giving out any bonus points. All, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. And Paul himself was a Jew. He's including himself in this condemnation. And we need to just pause for a moment and think about the radical nature of this statement because Paul was intense. He was raised a Jew. He had all the best teachers, all the best training. He got all the gold stars. Every parent-teacher conference, his parents went home so proud. He was top of his class. He's the one that everyone looks to as the model, the standard, the example. Jewish moms wanted their daughters to marry him. Jewish dads wanted their sons to be like Paul. Paul was zealous to keep the law. He had all the credentials for a religious, moral, law-abiding citizen. He was one of the good guys. But now he's including himself in this judgment. He says we are all under sin. For Paul to say this, he's, he's basically saying, think about this. The criminal who's on the street robbing the poor or killing the innocent, or abusing the vulnerable. That person is equal to me. I am no better than that person. That's a radical statement. That's not how you think. That's not how we normally think. It's not how we judge ourselves or the world. But this is how God, the one true judge, judges everyone apart from Christ. We are born under sin. To be under sin is to be under the dominion of sin. This is Paul's thesis statement. You are under sin. And then he goes on in verses 10 through 18, and he he just hammers this point home. He's giving us further explanation and further evidence. Verse 10, he says, as it is written. And then following verses 11 through 18, these are simply quotations from the Old Testament, from Psalms, from Isaiah, From the oracles of God. Remember last week? So these are the very words of God. So Paul's saying, this is not my verdict. I'm not the one saying this. These aren't my words. These are the very words, the judgment of Almighty God. And he begins by saying, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. This is the scriptural doctrine of total depravity, or we might call it radical corruption. This doctrine of total depravity, it doesn't mean that all humankind is as evil as we could be. That's not what it means. It means that sin, to be born under sin, means that sin, we're under its dominion, it affects the whole person, everything about us. And And this is why I think perhaps a better term might be radical corruption. That word radical comes from the Latin word for root. 
radix, and it means root or core. So the term radical has something to do with the core of a thing. It permeates to the very core of our being. And Paul is showing us that the effects of being under sin extend to the very core of who we are. Some of you may know that the English word for core comes from the Latin word for heart. And so sin comes from the very core of who we are, the very center of our existence. That's why I love that kid's definition. Sin is anything that we think, say, or do that does not please God, and it all starts right here in our heart, at the core of who we are. Sin is the default mode for our heart. It's a direction. It's an aim. It's a bent. Sin is who we are by nature before it's something that we do. I've shared this story with some of you before, but uh, when our oldest daughter, Elena, was maybe, I don't know, six years old or so, and she has always uh, been a tender heart. It's one of the great blessings about her, a very sensitive, caring person. But she was maybe six years old, and, and she had done something wrong. And I was confronting her about it in a not-so-kind way. And I was being harsh. And I, I said to her, Elena, why did you do that? And with tears coming down her face, she said, because I'm a sinner. And this was the, the child prodigy theologian instructing her pastor dad i need to learn from her she got it we sin because we are sinners because we are under sin we're born with this nature that is bent towards sin that's why paul says none is righteous no not one god's standard for righteousness is himself it's perfection it's holiness Perfect obedience all day, every day. Always doing what is right out of love for God and love for neighbor, and no one does that. No, not one. You do not do that. I do not do that. We cannot do that. Paul goes on and he says, no one seeks for God. No one wants God for God himself. When we are under sin, we may think that we want God, but we really only want him for what he can do for us or we want him in our own making yesterday i was at a presbytery meeting and i was talking with michael brown the pastor at faith reformed in quarryville and lord willing and wednesday night you can pray for me i'll be i'll be preaching the message at a chapel at a ministry for recovering addicts and and i was talking to michael because he's preached at this chapel before and i haven't i just wanted to ask him about his experience there, see if he has any tips for me to help prepare me for this. And he, he was helpful, but then he shared with me how at one time as he was preaching there afterwards, a man came up to him and he said to him, I'll believe in Jesus if he'll protect my family. I'll believe in Jesus if he protects my family. And, and Michael said to him, well, what you really need to ask yourself is, will you believe in Jesus if he doesn't do anything for your family that you want him to do? See, men do not seek God for God, but for themselves, for what they can get from God. No one truly seeks God on their own. Verse 12 goes on and says, All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless or corrupt. So again, Paul here, he's showing us the direction of our lives. No one seeks for God. No one is running to God on their own. All have turned aside. 
everyone is running away from God on their own. We run away from God when we try to be our own king. We become a law unto ourselves. We do what is right in our own eyes. We don't want God. We don't want to serve God because we can serve ourselves. Have it our own way. Or we we run away from God when we try to be our own savior. I don't need to repent of my sin. I don't need to humble myself before the mighty throne of God and cast myself upon him for his undeserved mercy. I'll I'll just be a good person. I'll earn his blessing. This is performance-based living, and it's the American way. And we all get swept up, and it's tied. We don't need God because we can be our own king, and we can be our own saviors. But friend, God's not having it. That's not it. Turning aside from God reveals that you are under sin. You are corrupt to the very core of your being. Paul ends verse 12 by saying, No one does good, not even one. And if you haven't said it yet, maybe you're saying it now. All right, Paul. All right, God. This is where you're wrong. I know you're wrong. Now, I know a lot of good people. I know a lot of people who do a lot of good things. And you don't, even, you don't have to be a Christian. You don't have to believe there's a God to do good things. And there's some truth to that. You can do good on the surface, right? You can be a good neighbor. You can care for the poor. You can give to the extraordinary give. You can, you can do all kinds of good things on the surface. But those good things are not truly good by God's standard, his standard of holiness, They're not done from faith in God. They're not done from a desire to please God or honor God. They're not done in love for the good of others when love and good are defined by God and empowered by God. They're not done with no sin, no hidden interests or selfish motives at all. You see, apart from God, our so-called good simply reveals our sin and actually leads to further condemnation. This is how corrupt we are apart from God's grace. And it reveals how holy God is in his judgment. Friend, unless the Holy Spirit works in your life to change your heart, you will never serve God for God. You may serve him for yourself, or you'll serve yourself for yourself. Even in doing good for others, it will be about you, what benefits you, how you can feel good about yourself. This is not my diagnosis. This is God's diagnosis on your spiritual condition. And this is what is wrong with our world today. You are born under sin, totally depraved, radically corrupt. Your minds are darkened to the truth of God. Your hearts are hardened, resistant to the love of God. Your wills are in bondage to sin. You're unable to choose to do the will of God. Your ears are deaf to the word of God. Your mouths are mute to the praises of God, but they're full of curses and bitterness, and your feet run to evil and murder and not to peace. Do we not see that in our world? Do we not see that in our own lives? This is what we see in verses 13 and 14. Our speech reveals the wickedness of our hearts. The scriptures say, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Words from our lips are dangerous. It's like the venom from poisonous snakes. We lie 
and we deceive and we use our words to curse and to harm people. Right? Have you ever heard that saying? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. What a lie. Why do we learn that as children? That is not anywhere near true. You know how you know it's not true? There's many ways. One is you've all been hurt by words. You've all been hurt by words. We also know it's not true because of what Paul says here, right in Romans chapter 3. But we also know because we know it in our hearts because chances are you also have heard that other juvenile sing-song rhyme we learn as children. I'm rubber and you're glue. Whatever you say bounces off me and sticks to you. Well, why do we even need to say that if words don't hurt? Where's the logic in that? Stop teaching people those sing-song rhymes. Our words are used to hurt people because our hearts are corrupt. We are under sin. And not only that, but our actions, our lives, they show the fruit of our corrupt hearts. Verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. Why is there hate in the world? Why is there murder in the world, or war, or misery? Human history, our own lives, are littered with the fruit of our corrupt natures. We don't know how to live at peace with God. We don't know how to live at peace with our fellow men. And then in verse 18, Paul puts the final nail in the coffin. This is the prosecutor's closing argument. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So apart from the grace of God, you will live without reference to God. You will live as if he does not exist. You will live with no thought to him. Though he is your creator and your king and your judge, you will deny him. You will suppress him. You will ignore him. You will reject him. You will rebel against him. You will be dead to him. You are under sin and you have no defense and you are accountable to God. Verse 19 Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Paul says those under the law, and that really refers to everyone. Some might say, well, he's talking about the Jews. They have the written law of God. They have the Old Testament. Yes, he is talking about the Jews. But he's also talking about the Gentiles because remember Romans chapter one, they have the law written on their hearts. We know good from evil. We are under law and we are under sin so that every mouth may be stopped. Beloved, in this judgment, you are speechless. You have no defense. There's nothing that you can say that can justify your actions. You are guilty, period. Paul says that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. The word accountable means liable. It's a judicial word. It means that every single person is liable to punishment from God. This is true of everyone. Paul says no matter who you are, no matter what your record is, no matter if you've lived a good life, 
full of love and kindness and giving and service, or if you've lived a cruel life of selfishness and hatred, no matter what kind of life you've lived on the outside, apart from the grace of God, we are all alike. We are all condemned. We all deserve to be rejected by God and to receive his just and righteous punishment. You are under sin. You are accountable to God, liable for his punishment, and then to crush all reliance on self, Paul says, there's absolutely nothing you can do to save yourself. There's nothing you can do to get yourself outside from underneath this judgment. Verse 20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Works of the law are the works or the deeds that are required by the word of God. And remember, his standard is perfection, and we all fall short. That word justified, that's another legal term. It it means to be declared righteous, to be made right with God. So here's the judgment. Here's the, this is the reality. We need to remove ourselves from living in fantasy land and deal with reality. This is reality. There's nothing you can do to save yourself. There's nothing you can do to remove your guilt and be made right with God. There's no amount of adjustments that you can make to your behavior. No improvements that you can make that can remove your guilt before a holy God. There's no amount of psychological self-mastery that you can perform over yourself that can control or change your sinfulness. You can't change who you are at the core. This is really bad news. It's worse than you thought. But beloved, this is the truth. It's the reality. It's the diagnosis that we have from God, our maker himself. You were born under sin. You're accountable to God. There's nothing you can do to save yourself. This is the same for everyone. We all have the same deadly disease. We're in the waiting room, and here's the diagnosis. We all have the same deadly disease, and we all need the same treatment, the same cure. Now, I mentioned we're we're all patients in the waiting room of the ER. Now, actually, that's the atmosphere that we want here as we gather so that we can be honest. We can admit our needs and our weaknesses and our hurts, and we can show compassion and love and kindness to one another. But when it comes to our spiritual condition before God from birth, it's, it's worse than that. We are like a dead corpse in the morgue. The good news is Jesus came to raise people from the dead. Now we're getting to that. But I want to ask you this question. Now remember, it's my aim, and, and I'm preaching to myself as much as I am to you. But I want to squeeze every drop of self-righteousness and pride and self-sufficiency and self-condemnation out of you, out of me today and send us home more thankful than we have ever been with a greater understanding of and appreciation for this amazing grace and mercy and love and righteousness of God that is given to us freely through Jesus Christ. So I want to ask you, I want to close by asking this question. How is it possible that you're here today? How is it possible 
that you're here today, that, that we're here and we are not suffering this very moment the punishment that we are liable to God for, which is eternal separation from him in hell. How is it possible you're here today? That you're either physically present with us or watching through the live stream or maybe listening to a recording someday. How is it possible that you're here today with hope? Either the hope of being saved from this judgment or today you're already enjoying the salvation from God. How is that possible? You were under sin. You were accountable to God. You cannot save yourself. So how is there any hope? Well, I guess I should stop right there. That's how our passage ends. You have to come back next time. I'm going to be like one of those streaming shows. Leave you on the cliffhanger. Next one starts in seven seconds. I can't do that. I can't stop right there. That'd be spiritual malpractice. And Paul doesn't do that. See, the book of Romans, it's meant to be read all at once. So Paul doesn't stop there. It's just I can only... Unless you want me to preach for like 20 hours. We can't do the whole book right now. But how is it possible? We're dead corpses in the morgue. The reason it's possible is because Jesus has come to raise the dead, beloved. It's possible because of Jesus and only because of Jesus. The Bible says no one seeks for God. Now I've shared this story with you, some of you before. Uh, David Platt is a pastor and, and he tells a story about being, I think it was in India, and he's talking to Uh, Muslims and Hindus and they're talking about religion and relationship with God and and so he says to them okay so let me see if I if I understand this correctly in your minds here's the picture God's at the top of the mountain and you Hindus you Hindus you might be taking one route up the mountain and Muslims you might be taking another route and here I am a Christian and I'm taking a different route but but we're all basically getting to the same place we're all making our way up the mountain trying to find God and and that's how you see it they're like yeah exactly that's it And David Platt turns to them and he says, what if I told you this? What if I told you that the Holy God at the top of the mountain doesn't wait for us to make his way, for us to make our way up to him? What if he comes down to rescue us? And they said, well, that would be wonderful. He said, let me introduce you to Jesus. Let me introduce you to Jesus. No one seeks for God. No one's trying to find their way up that mountain to the true God. The good news is God seeks for us. Jesus said it. I came to seek and to save the lost. So how is it possible you're here today? Because Jesus, God in the flesh, sought you. And he found you. And he knows your name. And he loves you. Though you were born in sin and you're accountable to God, you can't do anything to save yourself. He came and he saved you. Or... He's seeking you right now. He might be seeking you right now. All right, I gotta cheat. I gotta read some of the next passage. Romans 3, 21. And you gotta wait till the new year till we get to this. So after today, we're gonna do a four-week series on the servant songs from Isaiah. We're gonna just behold the glory of Jesus Christ as he was promised to us. Christmas morning is a Sunday. There's no better place to enjoy Christmas morning than right here. And we preach the gospel. And then... The new year will turn into Romans chapter 3. But I'm going to read Romans 3, 21 through 25. And we printed it on the inside cover of the worship God if you don't have a Bible. But listen, this is why we have hope today. This is why it's possible that we're here. 
But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Beloved, there's hope for us. We can't get this righteousness on our own, but now Paul's saying, hey, it can be given to you. For there's, and it can be given to everyone. There's no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Beloved, that is our hope. God sent his own son, Jesus, and Jesus became sin for us. And Jesus became liable for our punishment. And God raised him from the dead so that all who trust in him are made new and made free. Let me share with you a little bit about uh, later in Romans. All right, this is, we're gonna get to this wonderful section on grace. So here's some of what is coming. So now later in Romans, We will learn that for those who trust in Christ, you are not under sin anymore, but under grace. So instead of the wrath of God, you have the favor of God all day, every day. The favor of God is on you. Listen, children of God, this is where, let's squeeze every ounce of self-condemnation out of ourselves right now, okay? Let's do that together. What is God's disposition, his demeanor towards you now? If you're under grace instead of under sin. It is the same as his disposition, his demeanor towards his own son, Jesus Christ. It's the same. This is my beloved son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. You are precious saints, loved by God. So here's a... A story, I don't believe this is a true story. It's a parable. Let's call it a parable. So there's an Irish priest, and he's walking among his parish, and he goes out into the countryside, and he comes upon this peasant farmer, and the farmer is kneeling in the dirt praying. And the priest is so impressed by his devotion. And so he goes up to him when he's finished praying, and and he says, you must be very close to God. And the farmer pauses for a moment and he looks the priest in the eyes and he says, yes, he's very fond of me. He's very fond of me. What is God's disposition towards you, beloved? He is very fond of you. You're not under sin, you're under grace. Now, instead of being liable for the punishment in in the court of God, what are you doing? You're awaiting your reward. You're awaiting your reward. You still have the court date coming. If you're in Christ, that that judgment day is coming, but you already know the verdict. In Christ. No condemnation. Not guilty. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who's raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for you. You know what Jesus is praying for you today, right now? He's praying that you will believe that what God says in his word is true. That you will receive it. That you'll base your life on it. That your faith will not fail because 
He wants you to know that in the midst of your sin and your weakness and your failures and your suffering, you're his. You are his. And he wants you to trust him, rest in him, and rejoice in him. Before, nothing you could do could make you right with God. Nothing could remove your guilt. Now, nothing you do can remove his favor. Nothing you do can remove his love. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. So how do you respond? Thank you, thank you, thank you. Your life is now one big thank you to God. So I'll close with this. I imagine that you will ask someone or someone will ask you this week, what are you thankful for this Thanksgiving? And here's a suggestion. Maybe we could all answer, what am I thankful for this morning? Well, let me tell you something. I was born in sin. I was accountable to God. And there was nothing that I could do to save myself. But Almighty God, the creator of all things, he gave his own son, Jesus Christ, the sinless, spotless lamb of God. And he came and lived a perfect life in my place. And he died on the cross for my guilt and my shame. And he was raised to life again. And now he has forgiven me and clothed me with his righteousness and given me new eternal life. That's what I'm thankful for this Thanksgiving. No greater savior, no greater gift. Would you like to receive this gift today? Amen? It's going to be the best Thanksgiving ever. Glory to God. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. And one postscript before I pray, that man who wanted Jesus to protect his family, the next week came back weeping, saying, I've trusted in Christ. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let's pray together.